Mercenaries have been with us as long as warfare itself, even longer than standing armies. How did today's mercenary-like activities threaten peace and security in Africa, the Middle East, and even Europe? What U.S. vital interests are at stake? That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome back for the third installment of this series on mercenaries in modern warfare. I'm Chris Mayer. The idea behind the ancient art of modern warfare is that, like mercenaries themselves, the broad outlines of waging war have remained constant through history. The problems we face in promoting peace and waging war are as eternal as human nature. Looking at the mirror of history can help us understand where we have been and just might provide hints of how to get to where we want to go. Earlier podcasts in the ancient art of modern war described quasi-mercenary organizations, which I'll shorten to QMOs, what they did, where, and who are some of the key players. Listeners of these podcasts should be familiar with organizations such as Wagner, Eagle Anti-Terror, RSB Group, Moran, Enot, Vega, and Patriot, holding companies such as Concord Management and Iveropolis, and the names of Dmitry Utkin and Evgeny Prigozhin. Listeners also know that Russia isn't the only government sponsoring mercenary-like operations. Most notably, Turkey and the United Arab Emirates fund mercenaries in places such as Azerbaijan, Libya, Eastern Africa, Syria, and Yemen. Previous podcasts describe allegations of human rights abuses and violations of the law of war by mercenaries and QMOs. All of these are disturbing. Something previous podcasts did not address was how these organizations destabilize entire regions, spread armed conflict, and in general undermine global peace and stability. More relevant to most listeners, how do these actors and their actions threaten the vital interests of the United States in particular and Western interests in general? In other words, why do we care? Many will probably roll their eyes at this, saying they get it already. Horrible human rights violations, denying people self-determination, undermining the principle of government, monopoly of force, etc. I get it. All of these are important. But how does this affect vital interests that merit a national or international response? In most of the cases cited in these podcasts, these QMOs are working for a legitimate government. Mozambique, Central African Republic, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Puntland, Somaliland, and others. Their operations are entirely internal to a specific country and support the ability of the legitimate government to govern. If human rights abuses are alleged, how is that different than human rights abuses in many other countries where there are no mercenaries, where the government is perfectly capable of violating the human rights of their citizens without outside help? If the actions of that government or the mercenaries it employs, do not rise to the level of crimes against humanity, genocide, or waging aggressive war, why should we be more concerned about that than many other problems that compete for our interest and resources? So let's look at why we should care, how mercenary organizations support aggressive warfare, and why we should do something about it. Individual mercenaries, that is, freelance persons only working within an ad hoc mercenary structure for a particular mission or conflict, are as common today as they have been at any point in the last three centuries. Although they pose real threats to peace, security, and the exercise of human rights, this podcast is not about them, except in situations where individual mercenaries and ad hoc mercenary organizations 
are hired, trained by, or work alongside QMOs. Nor does this podcast address private security companies that limit their services to protecting people and property from criminal and other unlawful violence. These episodes address the relatively recent or resurrected situation of identifiable organizations that retain a corporate identity across engagements. As a reminder, when I use the term mercenary, I'm using the Cambridge Dictionary definition of a soldier who fights for a foreign country or group for pay. I may use mercenary, mercenary-like, and quasi-mercenary organization interchangeably, mostly to avoid overuse of any one term and to avoid implying that any of these terms have a precise, accepted, and universally applicable meaning. So how do these organizations threaten regional peace and security? In the last podcast, I said that the availability of competent military force for hire is not necessarily a bad thing. Executive Outcomes, Sandline, and Dyke Advisory Group are cases in point. However, in those cases, the fact of these contracts were public, and in most cases, the troops were under the authority of and legally responsible to the host nation military command structure. This accountability and compliance with established laws and customs of war is, unfortunately, exceptional. Alongside of these legitimate service providers are other, less legitimate purveyors of military force. The threat to regional security is a direct outcome of a three-dimensional lack of accountability. Accountability of the organization to the receiving state, that is, the state where the mercenary organization is operating. Accountability of the sending state, that is, the state providing the mercenary group, or at least allowing that group to operate from its territory. And the accountability of either state and the QMO under international law. This lack of accountability provides plausible deniability for both the receiving state and the sending state. The Central African Republic is one example of a receiving state being supported by a mercenary organization, with Russia as an example of a sending state that is using the mercenaries as part of its foreign policy. Using history as a mirror, there are strong parallels to this in the Lansknechts of the Holy Roman Empire of the late 15th and early 16th centuries. They belonged to and owed allegiance to the emperor, but were allowed to hire themselves out when the emperor wasn't using them, so long as they didn't make war on the emperor. In these contracts, the emperor had no responsibility for the actions of his mercenaries, and the hiring prince could also shift blame for any misfortune onto the mercenaries. This deniability would seem implausible in the current situation. Unlike the Holy Roman Emperor's Lansknechts, everyone knows that Russian mercenaries operate only at the direction of Moscow, and nothing happens without Putin's permission. The same should be true for QMOs working for other governments. The truth is a bit more complex, and I'll go into that more in the next podcast. For now, Putin has been able to dodge responsibility for the actions of his Russian mercenaries, and the sanctions the U.S. imposed on Prigozhin and his enterprises that control those mercenaries have been ineffective. This logically implausible but legally plausible deniability, according to a recent report by the think tank CSIS, means that whether or not Kremlin officials direct, plan, or approve any activity by Russian QMOs, the government can refuse blame. Going back to the 16th century, one of the problems with the Lansknechts was that they were successful, and success breeds imitation. Other, similar organizations sprung up throughout Europe, copying the activities, dress, and even the variations on the name of the imperial mercenaries. However, 
Although the Lanzknechts were at least nominally responsive to the emperor, copycat organizations had no oversight or accountability at all, except to whomever was paying them at that moment. Today, Wagner-type operations have their own copycat organizations. Mahalma Tactical is an Uzbekistan-based organization that trains and leads jihadist organizations in Syria. They are reported to be very successful and even have a strong social media presence. The United Arab Emirates has its own QMO known as Reflex Response. This QMO has its public-facing side, providing military training and special missions within the UAE. The UAE, however, is also alleged to organize operations in Yemen and Libya using foreign nationals working through Reflex Response or other UAE commercial enterprises affiliated with Eric Prince, who has dual U.S. and UAE nationality. Again, these activities, although sponsored by a sovereign state, are done without accountability by that state for its military intervention and with complete deniability. Mahalma Tactical takes it one step further and has no state sponsorship at all. The exercise of sovereign functions, and especially the ability to wage war without sovereign authority or responsibility, not only undermines peace and international stability, it undermines the laws and customs of war and the law of nations itself. Nowhere is this more apparent than when state-sponsored mercenary-like organizations are used to foment civil war or to directly participate in hostilities against another sovereign state. This has been most notable in Ukraine. Russia used individual mercenaries and ad hoc organizations in Chechnya, Georgia, and in the initial stage of the occupation of Crimea. These sometimes took the form of patriotic motorcycle clubs or teams recruited from Cossack groups. Learning from this, the Russian Army General Staff and the FSB, which is the successor to the KGB, began to organize these non-state armed actors. These newly organized mercenary-like formations first began operating in Ukraine in the last part of Russia's annexation of Crimea and took on a central role in Moscow's ongoing covert war in eastern Ukraine. Sometimes they conducted independent operations and at other times their actions were closely coordinated with regular Russian forces. During the peak of fighting in 2015, organizations like Wagner, Enot, Mar, and other groups numbered between 2,500 and 5,000 personnel. Activities of Moscow's QMOs included the full spectrum of unconventional warfare. These included intelligence collection, deception operations, and sabotage deep inside of Ukraine's territory, which disrupted the Kiev government's ability to respond to the attacks. This was combined with information operations, including black psyops targeting Ukrainian youth. In Ukraine's easternmost, predominantly Russian-speaking districts of Donetsk and Luhansk, QMOs trained and organized separatist militias, assassinated pro-Kiev resistance leaders in those districts, and conducted direct combat operations using armor, artillery, infantry, and air defense against Ukrainian military positions. These actions successfully undermined the ability of Kiev to respond to this aggression and pressured the West for diplomatic concessions, while shielding Putin from direct responsibility. The independent nature of these QMOs was not without problems for Moscow. The shooting down of both a Ukrainian military transport plane and a Malaysian civil airliner are both attributed to Russian-sponsored QMOs. Despite initial successes, and perhaps influenced by these unfortunate incidents, the early achievements of these QMOs largely stalled in 2015, 
turning the eastern Ukraine into another Russian-backed frozen conflict. Outside of the territory of the former Warsaw Pact, where the UN or regional international bodies are working to end an ongoing conflict, the interjection of state-sponsored mercenary organizations undermines the peace process. The continued fighting in Libya is one example. The United Nations Support Mission for Libya, UNSMIL, has been working since the end of 2016 to exercise mediation and good offices in support of the Libyan transition process. The UN-recognized government of national accord, however, only controls about half the country, with the other half controlled by forces of Khalifa Haftar, a former Libyan general who was backed by several governments, including Egypt, the UAE, and notably Russia. The presence of Russian Wagner-type mercenaries enabled Haftar's forces to go on the offensive, threatening Tripoli, the capital city of Libya. In response, Turkey, which backs the UN-recognized government, brought in thousands of fighters from Syria, combatants Turkey had trained in its counter-ISIS operations. The UAE, for its part, provided modern military equipment for Haftar's forces and sponsored fighters from Chad, mostly from a Chadian political and military organization known as FACT, F-A-C-T, which is a French acronym. This organization was trained by Wagner, allegedly with UAE funding. The use of FACT demonstrated second-order effects of state-sponsored mercenaries. When a ceasefire was brokered in October 2020, many of the mercenaries from Chad went home, reintegrated with FACT in northern Chad, and initiated an insurgency against the Chadian government, which included the assassination of Chad's president. Although the Libyan ceasefire agreements demand removal of all mercenaries and foreign fighters, it's unlikely that Russia will withdraw its only effective presence in North Africa. The success of UN-mediated peace efforts is a stated interest of the United States in the current administration's Interim National Security Strategic Guidance, published in March of this year. The strategic guidance points out that the U.S. withdrew all its support for offensive military operations in Yemen and backed UN efforts to end the war. Yet, as in Libya, the efforts of internationally brokered peace in Yemen are undermined by state-sponsored mercenary operations. These operations inject combat-experienced troops, military hardware, and information operations to secure military advantages for one side. In Yemen, I already mentioned the presence of Mahalma Tactical, but the mercenaries are generally sponsored by the UAE or Saudi Arabia. There are other open-source reports that Russian mercenaries have been operating in Yemen since 2018, allegedly backing the Iranian-supported Houthis. If the U.S. government is serious about the success of UN-brokered peace, then it must address the proliferation of quasi-mercenary organizations. Surprisingly, however, the U.S. strategic guidance does not mention Russian mercenary forces as a specific threat. Nonetheless, according to think tanks such as the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment, the Jamestown Institute, the Carnegie Foundation, and CSIS, Moscow uses irregular forces like Wagner to advance its geopolitical and economic goals and undermine U.S. interests. These state-sponsored QMOs are Moscow's version of the Swiss Army knife. They can do everything from providing foreign leaders with security to training, advising, and assisting partner security forces, which may include combat. In Russia's near abroad, they can be and are used more aggressively. What happened in Ukraine could happen again, there or elsewhere. I made this same point before my retirement from the Pentagon 
and senior leaders were, at that time, receptive to warnings about Russia's use of Wagner-type operations. It's nice to see that organizations like CSIS continue to sound the warning. Some NATO members qualify as near-abroad countries for Russia, and Moscow may still consider them to be in its proper sphere of influence, with NATO and the U.S. being interlopers. Some of these countries still have sizable Russian or Russian-speaking populations. In the past, Moscow issued statements saying that the Kremlin assumes responsibility for protecting ethnic Russian populations in Russia's near abroad. This was the excuse it used for intervention in eastern Ukraine. Could Russia use the same rationale for moving against NATO countries like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, or even Poland? Does the availability of Wagner-type elements make an intervention more likely? Could Wagner or a Cossack unit attack in battalion-sized combat operations using tanks and artillery as Wagner has done in Syria? This is not outside the realm of possibility. Using the example of Ukraine, one or another of the Russian QMOs could be contracted to conduct reconnaissance, sabotage, and incite violence against and by the Russian ethnic population. Russia would claim genocide against the Russian minority and the right of that people to defend itself. This could be followed by Wagner-type operations within the target country and perhaps a spontaneous, unauthorized border crossing by Cossack forces. Russia would, of course, disavow any such action, saying that it was entirely a matter of self-defense by the local population and deny any active participation by Russia. While NATO debates whether this merits an Article 5 response by the alliance, Wagner and the Cossacks will have secured the ethnic Russian areas, declared independence of those areas, and asked regular Russian troops to enter for their protection against NATO reprisals. Is this likely? I hope not. Is it possible? The experience in Ukraine argues that it is. Before I go, people will ask about China. What about Chinese mercenary-like organizations? The short answer is that there aren't any, or at least not right now. Unlike Russia, China endorsed the Montreux document governing the use of private military and security companies. There are Chinese private security companies, but outside of mainland China, their activity is restricted to unarmed personal protection, security management, and armed anti-piracy security on ships at sea. Apart from piracy protection, outside of Chinese territory, their private security personnel do not carry firearms. That does not mean that China is not part of the problem. Most notably, Frontier Services Group, until recently managed by Eric Prince, is a Chinese company. Although its activities in China are restricted to training, police, and private security, its branches outside of China, most notably in the UAE, have been implicated in private military activity. Another problem is that Chinese commercial interests of the Belt and Road Initiative hire armed protective services in the countries they operate in. Since price is the overriding factor for the Chinese in contracting for any service, including security, Chinese firms sometimes choose to hire local militias or warlords for their protection. If the U.S. is serious about promoting the peace process in conflict zones, expanding markets, supporting the development of Western-oriented democratic institutions, the security of friends and allies against unconventional threats, and the self-determination of all peoples, then we must take up the threat posed by unaccountable mercenary organizations seriously. If the United Nations Working Group on Mercenaries calls out Russian mercenaries for serious violations of the law of war, as it recently did, 
then our own respect for the law of war demands action. If the U.S. government is serious about re-engaging with and through international organizations, then we must recognize the threat posed to the efforts of international organizations' success in places like the Central African Republic, Libya, Yemen, and Eastern Europe. But how can our action, or the actions of international organizations, adequately address these threats? Before I answer that, in the next podcast, I'll look at the logistics of mercenary-like operations. What keeps them manned, supplied, and financed? That will be the next subject in The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.